My name is Sean. I am the, uh, the lead pastor here at Grace Church. So I want to thank you guys, thank you guys for being here today. Uh, whether you are in Avon or Braintree, we're really glad that you guys uh, are, are here. Um, we're going to be uh, starting in the book of, uh, in the book of uh, Ephesians. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And our teaching today actually comes from information that you gave us four months ago. So last weekend uh, at, at Grace, uh, we did our friends and family check-in, and then we, we celebrated communion together. On that friends and family check-in, we, we've identified nine different markers, nine different things that would be true or starting to happen in the life of somebody who is beginning to follow after Jesus. And, and on each one of those nine markers, we asked you to indicate where you, where you personally are at. We said, write down if you're already doing these things, if, if you, you're not, but, but you're, you're going to start, or if you're not ready. And then the last question on that check-in uh, page asked on those, on those things that you said I'm not ready for, what was the reason why? Like, why, why are you holding back? What's keeping you from taking that next step as a follower of Jesus? And back in May, you guys overwhelmingly said, I don't have enough time. Nod your head if your like, life is crammed full of busyness. Nod your head. Right? If you're, if, nod your head if your life is crammed full of busyness that isn't your own busyness. It's busyness that you got because of other people you're responsible for. Right? Like uh, all of our lives are busy, and we think that the, 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 it, the, the solution is better management of, of the time that we have, because I, I just don't have enough time. I've, I found a quote this past week uh, from an author named H. Uh, Jackson Brown who says this, don't say that you have enough time. You have the same number of hours per day that were given to Helen Keller, Louis Pasteur, Michelangelo, Mother Teresa, Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas Jefferson, and Albert Einstein. <laughs> that just makes me feel like I suck. That's all that does. That doesn't, that doesn't, there you go. God bless you. Be warmed and filled. May the peace of Christ be on you, right? Like that doesn't, like it's, but it's true. It's like the great common denominator of every single person. We've all got the exact same amount of time. Nobody gets any more or any less. The difference between us is what we do with the time that we've got. That it's, it's what, we, what we do. When you, when you Google, and I did this, and that's how I know this, when you Google quotes about time, the, the, overwhelming, the overwhelming bulk of responses is this quote here. It says, many things are not equal, but everyone gets the same 24 hours every day. And you make time for what you want. It's just true. You make time for what you want. I would add that what you do with your time demonstrates what you want most. Because no matter how busy you are, you still stayed caught up on your Netflix show. Right? You, <laughs> you don't want to admit it, but you did. Right? Like I know no matter how busy you are, you still found plenty of time throughout the day to play on that game on your cell phone. Right? Any, anybody else have cell phone games? Any? Any? Okay, just checking. Like, we still made time to watch the game on Thursday. I still made time to watch the Premier League games I taped last weekend, right? I, I, I'm, a, I'm a Chelsea fan, so like I, I've already watched two of the, those are like two hours. Like, so as busy as we are, we still make time for what we really want, yes or no? 
you still went to work, you still ate, and dang it, we love food. We will always make time for food. It's just that like those things that are fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh down on the list, we don't, we don't have time for. And we, we figure if I, if I managed my time better, then maybe I could get to those four things. And maybe the solution isn't the managing of your time, but the realignment of what's most important to you. So for me, I, this, like, this hit home for me early on in my adult life. I got married young. I was 21 years old. Uh, and at 21 years old, I weighed a buck 75. I was 175. I was strapping, and the homeboy was dead sexy, right? At 27. And then, like, within like a year or two of marriage, I already, I like, I blew right past 185. I sat at 185, like I, I, hit, I went from 175 to 185 real quick, like, like in six months. Like once I stopped eating like dorm food, got married and started eating real food, um, like I, I shot to 185 real, real quick. And then I, like I'm at 190 and, and then, you know, I went back, so I'm like, at, I'm 24 years old now, been married three years, I weigh I weigh 190, 195, and, and looking at my wedding pictures, I knew I was never going to be 175 again, because if you look at my wedding pictures, 175, by the way, how many of you guys, uh, nod your head if you are under 175 right now, and you are under 21 years old, nod your head if you're under 21, and you weigh under, this is what you have to look forward to, I just... <laughs> Just want you to know it's going to happen to every single one of you guys. So I, I blew right past 185. I'm like 195, and I'm like, oh, my word, I'm almost 200 pounds. I need to lose weight. I need to lose weight. So I, I uh, watched some. You know, <laughs> anybody remember Joe Weider or Wider? How do you say that guy's name, the, the bodybuilding the free magazines that you get and all of that. And then they were doing this thing on, in the, in the mid-90s where uh, it was really popular in the muscle magazines where they were doing all these contests where you would take a before picture of yourself with a newspaper uh, without a shirt on. And then like, it was like some kind of a, like a 90-day challenge. And then like 90 days later, you're supposed to take another picture. Um, and then I would look at the before and after pictures of other people. And I'm looking at the before pictures saying, even some of those look pretty good. Like, how can I, like, I want to be like that guy, right? There's a comedian who talks about, about that. Uh, I, have, I have several different before pictures. I have no after pictures because I kept restarting this thing. I like, <laughs> you'd poof out your tummy a little bit more or you just let it off. Like, like I'm constantly holding in my gut. Is this, can I be, a, I'm, Okay. All right, I don't know if you guys are quiet because you struggle, you feel my pain, or if you're just like, this guy's psychotic. I'm not sure exactly where you're, you're at on this, but so I'm constantly holding it in a little, but for that picture, you know, I, I give my wife the camera, and I was like, Billy, take a picture of me, and she's like, why would you want a picture of this? And I'm like, that hurts my feelings, um, because the after picture is going to be great. Uh, there was just never any after picture. And the sad thing, that's back before digital. So there are floating around, and I have no idea where those pictures are. So somewhere in the world right now, maybe in one of the houses we used to rent, uh, there's really embarrassing photos of me in my underwear push, pushing. Actually, I still wish, I look, I, now that I'm, you know, like two and a quarter, I'm wishing I still look buck 95 is what I'm, what I'm wishing now. Uh, but I remember what I did was is I, I didn't have enough time to, to work out. And so, like, or I didn't figure that out first. The first thing I did is I, I put down my goal weight, 185. And then I wrote it in bubble letters, and I took out some, you know, color markers, and I 
colored it on, on uh, three by five cards, and I started sticking those everywhere. I was like, maybe the problem is that I'm not thinking about it enough. So on the fridge was like, you know, in big colorful letters, 185. On my dashboard in my truck was 185. On the mirror in the bathroom was 185. Next to the TV was 185. And anywhere I was tempted to eat, I'd put 185. And that didn't help me at all, because now I'm 200. And so now I'm busy, so I'm, I'm thinking maybe, like, but like, then it dawned on me, you make time for what you want. So I, I made like a little motivational poster, like, like, like three by five card, maybe five by eight card, something like that, whatever that was, like, like the four by six, I was bigger than the three by five. And I wrote down on there in bubble letters and colored it and everything, you make time for what you want. And I put that right next to the 185. So it's like 185, you make time for what you want. And what I discovered over the last 28 years of marriage is what I really want is vanilla ice cream. That's what I really, really want. Like I, my choice, my problem wasn't that I didn't have time to work out. I've got the same amount of time as everybody else. The problem was what I wanted more than that, right? Because I made, you make time for what you want. So I'd I don't know if I can, and I, I don't know how much of this is personality driven. Like, I had a professor in college who said that there are plenty of time people and not enough time people. Uh, the not enough time people are people like my wife, Billie Jane. There's never enough time. So, if something's due on Friday, they start working on that Monday. I call that insane. That's what I call that. But she's a not enough. How many of you guys raise your hand if you're a not enough time person? You're always like you work on things early and you show up five. Like if you're five minutes early, you're on time. And if you're on time, you're late. If that's you, put your hand up and write back down. The rest of us in the room hate your guts because you make us look bad. It's just true. Then there are the plenty of time people. The plenty of time people are like, it's Monday. It's not due till Friday. I've got plenty of time. Tuesday comes by. I'm like, I got plenty of time. Wednesday comes by. I got plenty of time. Thursday goes by. I got the rest of all day tomorrow, and truthfully, two homeroom classes tomorrow, I can do it in before it's due. Nine o'clock that night, I'm like, all right, maybe not as much time, right? And then at 10 o'clock, I start on my paper, and I'm taking it to class the next day, and I'm working on it. I'm skipping a science class in the gym. Like, like I get it done. I'm just, uh, and I don't, I don't know how much of this is personality driven. So I've, I've read books and blogs and Articles on how to be more disciplined, um, and I'm 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 not that guy. Like I don't like my day. My day is un like I don't do the like I'm not, I don't live on a routine. Routines suck the living life out of me. And there's those of you guys who, if you didn't like, you woke up and you did something out of order. You're, you're like the rest of your entire day is shot because you didn't follow the routine. Now I think some of this is personality driven. So I don't want to make anybody. So the goal of today's teaching is not to get everybody more organized. That's not what this is about. What I want to do is I want to give you a life hack that I honestly think is going to make a difference, so that you can start taking the steps that you said last week you know you need to start taking. And here's the life hack. Stop thinking about your life in terms of time management and start thinking about it in terms of priority alignment. Are you with me? This isn't about being more disciplined with your time. This is about changing your priorities. That's what this is about. See, I make time for the things that are more important to me. So all of the things that you said you can't do because you don't have time, truthfully, it's not about time. It's not that important to you. 
Otherwise, you would do it. You still made time to brush your teeth, right? But you did not take time to listen to the Bible app on the Read to the Bible program, the, the, the thing. And that takes just as long. Do you see what I'm saying? Like we just, our problem is not time management, it's our priorities. So if your question is, how do I rearrange my priorities so that they're more in line with where I really do want to go, that I can help you with, and that the Bible speaks to. And that's where we're at in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've, if you've got your Bible, turn there, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. And I'm going to stop right there only because that's very difficult for us because the scorecard we keep is the scorecard that's handed to us by everybody else around us. I keep score on how I'm doing with my life based on how everybody else is keeping score. If they're keeping score with how much playing time their kid gets in travel sports, then guess what becomes more important to me? How much playing time my kid gets in travel sports. Are you with me? If the people I work with keep score... On, on how much time they spend with a the boss, then guess who I, how I start keeping score? How much time I spend with a boss? And it seems like everybody, at least in this country, maybe the whole world, keeps ultimate score against each other based on how much what? Money we have. So I, I think this first one is difficult for us anyway. God says, that's not the scorecard I'm grading you on. The scorecard I'm grading you on is irrespective to the amount of time your kids get in travel, sports, how much time you get with the boss, or how much money you have in the bank. What I'm measuring you against is me, is me. So how do I do this? How am I going to imitate God in everything I do because I am his dear children? Verse 2 gives me the answer. I'm to live a life filled with love following the example of who? Following the example of Jesus. So I'm going to give you six things that you can do so that you can start living according to a different priority. The first thing is this. Know what Jesus did. I would say that you can't rearrange your priorities if you are not willing to at least read about Jesus. Now the Bibles that we give out at Grace Church are the easiest to read. I got a friend of mine. He's a UPS guy. <clears throat> we know each other through the Easton Men's League. I don't play anymore because I... I'm not as good as I used to be. I'm just going to be honest. So I'm not good enough for that league anymore. And, and he stopped playing a, a year or two ago. And then this past Wednesday, uh, we hung out together uh, on, on my back deck. Actually, actually, he bought me a cigar, and it was awesome. We hung out for like an hour and a half and just talked about everything. And one of the questions he asked me was, and like the, the, he's, a good, he's a friend of, like he's, I won't say good friend. We're becoming good friends. And one of the questions he had was about the Bible being really hard to read. And, and like he has a relative who says that if you don't read from this Bible, you can't follow God. And, and what I want you to know is that God inspired the original authors to write the Bible for us, right? And that's in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Uh, and, and, and any English translation that is an accurate translation from those originals is, is the word of God. I don't care which version of the Bible you read as long as you practice the version of the Bible you read. Does that make sense? Just find one that you can read. The one that we give out that's in every single one of our chairs, or I don't know if they're in every chair, I think they're in every other chair, 
the Bible that we, that is the easiest one that I've found for me to read. It's not even my favorite one, but it is the easiest one to read, and that's why we use it. Start in the book of John. Start in the book of Matthew. I don't care. But just look at the way Jesus treated people and try to do the same thing. God says, I want you to imitate me because you're my kid. And there's no dad that doesn't want the same thing for their son. No mom who doesn't want the same thing for their daughter. I don't think God's being a jerk to expect the same thing from us that we expect from ours, right? So if you want to know the way that God would live, look at Jesus. That's what the Bible, the Bible, Bible says. Um, uh, live a life filled. Uh, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing uh, aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality. So he's going to be some specific force here. Let there, no be, let there not be sexual immorality and purity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these aren't for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Number verse 6, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. And this brings me to the second thing that you can do. Stop making excuses for why you're not living right. Number one is start looking at what Jesus actually did. Number two, stop making excuses why you don't value that life. Stop making excuses and rationalizing why it's okay for you to lie. Why it's okay for you to sleep around. Why it's okay for you to not put the needs of your family above your own. Why it's okay for you to not forgive the people who've done unforgivable things for, to you. Knowing that God forgave you for doing unforgivable things. Quit making excuses for why it's okay for you to stay disobedient. Number one, know what Jesus actually did. Number two, stop making excuses for why you don't do that. Keep reading. Uh, verse 7. Uh, don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Verse 10. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. 11. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. 12. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, awake a sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light, and I'll give you the third thing, and that is to determine which choice that you have before you most pleases God. So there's a lot of things I don't have time for, but before I choose not to do them or before I sign up to do things that... Every yes you say means that you're saying no to something else. You guys know this, right? I'm not the first person to say that. But when we signed Garrett up for summer baseball, we had no idea that we were saying no to happiness is what we were saying no to. <laughs> if you've got a kid in summer baseball, you know that like that's the end of your life for the next three months. Like you have no more choices. Summer baseball takes over your entire life. And we signed up Garrett for summer baseball because truthfully, we were flattered as parents that they thought he was good enough to put on their travel team. Him being on travel baseball made me feel better about me. That's honestly a main reason why we put him in summer baseball. <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't have admitted that to you then. I would, have made a, I would have rationalized away why it was okay for me, right? But I, halfway through the summer, I looked at Billy Jane and I said, 
I'm sorry, but we are never going to do this again. And she said, she said, why? I said, because he's 10 years old. He hasn't earned the right to run the rest of this family. <laughs> that is true. Now, just so you know, taking him out of summer baseball meant he didn't make the varsity squad in high school. That is what that ended up meaning. He was 10. He's 23 now. I've got part of the story to fill in. And us keeping him in summer baseball might have meant he did make the varsity team. But if you know my kid, then answer this question. Did it negatively affect? I shouldn't say that. What Garrett learned by us not signing him up for baseball was that the world does not revolve around him. And that was just as good of a lesson to learn. Is that the needs of the family, that like, while daddy would die for him, he's not more valuable than anybody else in the family. Are you with me? And us taking a week of vac we did not take a vacation that summer. Like, <laughs> I, I hate baseball to this very day. I don't, I don't, I'm just, I'm, I'm kidding a little bit, but um, it was, it was that he learned a valuable lesson, like, I, I, he learned a lot, I believe, by us saying no to baseball in order to say yes to the rest of the family. Keep reading, go down to verse 15, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. I'm going to give you the fourth thing. Find wise people to run your decisions by. Godly wise people. If you're a parent, find other parents who've already raised their kid past your kid's stage and ask them what they think about what you guys are about to do. If you're a single guy in college and you know a single guy in 25 who's really got it going on, right, and you're not sure which internship to take next summer, Take that guy out for coffee and ask him opinions about that. Find wiser people than you are, more godly people than you are, to help shape the decisions you need to make. Verse 16, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Uh, make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of it. Here's the question that you ask for, for this fifth step that you can take. Which choice takes me further in the right direction? Which choice takes me further in the right direction? And I'm going to go with Garrett again because he's my oldest and he's out of the house and he's already moved out of the home and <clears throat> on the other side of the country. <laughs> and I only get to see him twice a year now. But Garrett being in, in travel basketball, uh, when, when he made the, when he made, uh, the basketball team, uh, tournaments are every Saturday and Sunday. And when he made the team, we sat down with Garrett and we told him, what's more important, God or basketball? And he said, God. And I said, then when you have tournaments on the weekend, if it, and this back before we had Saturday night services, which by the way, for parents with kids in travel sports, tell me how much like, like that those Saturday night services are just like a huge lifesaver for those families who have kids who play on Sunday mornings. But we didn't have those Saturday services. 
uh, back, back, back then, and it was, it was just Sunday mornings. And so I told him, I said, who's more important, God or, or basketball? And he said, God. I said, so where do you think we should be on Sunday mornings, in church or in the gym? And I let my 12-year-old answer, and he answered, in church. For me to make any other decision would have communicated to him what was most important. We rationalize that away by saying, but we go to church all year long. And we go to church so many more times than what they're playing sports on Sunday morning. And while that's true, what we are also teaching is that if they're at the same time, basketball is more important. That's the other thing we teach them. Are you with me? And if this is personal, I'm sorry. But there's a reason why 80% of kids who are raised in church walk away from God when they grow up. Because their faith never costs their parents anything, so that it means nothing to them when they become adults. If they don't see how faith costs you something, then they will never value it. Are you with me? Our faith needs to cost us Jesus said, many of you, like there was no one who will say, right, who will lose house or home or father or mother who I will not repay you both in this life and in the life to come. Jesus expected that your choice to prioritize him would mean that you would miss out on other things. But he said, if I can lay down my life for you, then I'm not being a jerk to expect you to do the exact same thing. Lay down your life for me. And for some of you, this means that if you don't compromise your integrity as a follower of Jesus to do what your boss tells you to do, you might lose your job. And there are followers of Jesus in this church who have been fired because they would not lie for their boss. And I think God in heaven says, you are like Jesus. You win. And everybody else that works with them thought they were an idiot. But they're not going to stand in judgment day and be judged by that other person. They know what's most important is that I, as a child of God, am conformed to the image of His Son. And I will cooperate with what God's trying to do in my life. I will not be dragged kicking and screaming. This is what I want. What is most important to you? To be rich? Because for most of us, it is. And all of your choices align right behind that one, doesn't it? Right? It's the reason why you got your education. It's the reason why you moved to Boston. To make more, to get more, to keep more, to spend more. And all of the other choices in your life file in line right behind it. If your true desire was to grow into the man that God destined you to be, you'd make a whole lot different choices and you know it. If you really did want to be godly, if you really did want to please God, you'd be making different choices. Our problem is not time. It's priorities. That's our problem. And I'll take you to the last one. 
Verse 17, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. So here's the six steps. Number one, know what Jesus actually did. Two, quit making excuses. Three, determine which choice would please the Lord. Remember that verse that says you can't can't serve God and money. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll love the one and hate the other. There's a Russian proverb that says, if you chase two rabbits, you'll catch neither one. If you've got a choice, you as, as, as whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you're a parent or a kid, you've got to choose what is the number one most important thing to you. Choose it and then evaluate everything else you're doing in your life and ask you this, does it take me closer to that? If it doesn't, change the decision. Now, that's what you're already doing. I'm just saying, if you think the number one thing needs to be changed, then consciously change it. If it's not being more godly, if it's not pleasing God, if it's not being more like the person God intended me to be, then make that the number one thing. And in light of that, realign every other choice for everything else that you're doing. Billy Jane did not want to keep going in PTO and run the Holiday Fair anymore because Holiday Fair is, is this world's version of purgatory. If you work for it, like if you've ever volunteered at your school and run the Holiday Fair, dear Lord in heaven, that, like they should pay you big time money for that. It is the very worst volunteer job. And for us, Billy Jane had just had Ryan. We've got a baby. We've got two older older kids. We just started the church. Our life is crazy, hectic, busy. And she had two priorities. One, and she told me this, she told me this this weekend. She said, it wasn't all spiritual. If we were going to put our kids in public school, then those public school teachers were going to know who I was, and I was going to know what they were teaching my kid. And number two, I wanted to get to know all of the other families who had kids my kids' age so that they would come to know and follow Jesus so that their kids and my son's friends would also come to know and follow Jesus. And I couldn't do that by watching TV at my house. So she rearranged her life around it and she pursued after it. You need to do the same. What do you do if you've been doing it wrong? The point of this is not to give anybody a guilt trip. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to let you off the hook. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says this. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. You know what makes me right with God? Jesus' choices, not mine. Are you with me? Me being made right with God isn't dependent on me having the right priorities that chuck off God's checklist either. I'm not made right with God by my performance. I'm made right with God by Jesus' performance. And he aced that test, and he gave me his test to hand in to the teacher. Are you with me? I'm made right with God by the work Jesus put in, not the work I put in. Skip down to verse 13, uh, verse 14. For by that one offering, Jesus offering himself, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. This made perfect is the idea that he has accomplished the rescue of those who are in the process of being made holy. Those who have been made holy are becoming more like Jesus. They are in the process of being perfected. They are in the process of 
changing. They are in the process of being made new. What this means is that I don't try to change and become new so that I can be made right with God. But if I have been made right with God, I will start making different choices. So what I can do is I can look at my own life and judge myself. Paul says, check yourself. Make sure of your election. Make sure you're saved. Make sure you've turned from sin and begin following Jesus. I don't perform and do good so that I will be saved and rescued from my rebellion against God. But if I have been saved and rescued from my rebellion against God, I will live differently. If I don't see the kind of changes that I think should be there if I'm God's child, then it's okay for me to wonder if I really am. And the goal isn't to try harder, to do more. The goal is to go back to square one and make sure that my heart's right with God and restart. That's the goal. Are you with me? I don't have to earn God's love. The Bible says that God proved he loved me. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God proved his love toward us, and that while we were still sinning and in rebellion against him, Jesus died for you. While you were the prodigal, Jesus loved you. Acts chapter 2 says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. God started blessing you before you ever did anything right. You know why? Because you were created in his image. He wanted to adopt you. What has the homeless orphan ever done to be adopted? Nothing. They were chosen. They were called. They were picked. But if I adopt that street kid into my home, dang it, that kid better start living differently. His adoption isn't dependent on it. <laughs> but his status at the dinner table is. Are you with <laughs> Like, I, I do expect my kids to live differently than yours because those aren't mine. Right? Keep reading. Verse 23. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. What is that hope? That I'm not made right with God by my performance. I'm made right with God by Jesus' performance. So I'm to do something. I'm to hang on to that. I'm to hold tight to that. Verse 23. Uh, verse, verse 24. Uh, let us think of ways to motivate one another that acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So what do I do if I'm struggling with this? Number one, I remember that my performance doesn't affect my relationship with God. But if I have a relationship with God, then my performance will change. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. And then Hebrews chapter 10 gives me three secrets to make sure to put up guardrails in my life to keep me going in this new direction. The three guardrails that I put up in my life, number one is this, to hold tight to what was promised, to remind myself I don't have to be good in order for God to love me. But because he already loved me, I want to be good. Are you with me? I don't have to change so that I can be his kid, but because I am his kid, I want to change. That's number one. Number two is this. Encourage each other to live differently because of that. And number three, connect with each other more often so it becomes easier to do that. If the only time you ever get encouragement to go in the right direction is for one hour on the weekend, you will not go that direction for very long. That's why we need our life groups. 
The truth is, we need to meet more often with people who are here outside of here. Number one, I am to hold tight to that promise that I made right with God by his performance, not mine. Number two, I am to find people to encourage to keep going in that same direction. And number three, I'm to meet even more often with other people who will encourage This is what it looks like to change your priorities. See, you can stay in the physical shape that you're in, but if you want to change the physical shape that you're in, you've got to start changing the things that you do, yes or no. You've got to change your eating habits. You've got to start working out. Pick things up, I put them down. You've got to start doing some of these things. If you want to stay spiritually stuck where you are, wishing you could be unstuck, do that all you want, but you're not going anywhere. If you want to get physically fit, there are things that you've got to change. And if you want to get spiritually fit, if you want to honor God, if you want to be who you say you want to be, you've got to do things differently. This is the exact same sermon that was preached in the very first sermon ever preached by the church in Acts chapter 2. And this is where we're wrapping it up. If you've got your Bible, go to Acts chapter 2. very first sermon that was ever preached was by the Apostle Peter. It was in front of a crowd of people who were accusing him of being drunk at nine in the morning. They were a hostile crowd, and he gets up to them, and he starts preaching to them about Jesus. He says, we're not drunk, as some of you guys think we are, but this is a fulfillment of what God had spoken to the Jewish people through the Jewish prophets. And he starts telling them all the things that the Jewish prophets said. This same Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead, as you yourselves know to be true. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when he starts to wind up, wind up the very first sermon that's ever preached, here's what it says in verse 37. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, what should we do about it? What I'm showing you is that what I'm telling you you need to do to reprioritize your priorities, what we just talked about, is the same thing that's been preached since day one. This has always been what it has looked like to be a devoted follower of Jesus. What should we do? Peter replied in verse 38, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Skip down to verse 41. Those who believed what Peter said were then baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. So the first thing that needs to happen is this. You've got to recognize that I have rebelled, I have disobeyed a holy and righteous God, and if God is good, then if I'm guilty, I shouldn't get away with it. I am guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments. I am guilty of being selfish towards my fellow, fellow man. And if God is good, I should pay. But because God is love, he let Jesus pay it for me. So when Jesus gave his life to me, I respond by turning from my sin and turning to God. I give my life to God. God, I'm sorry for my sin, my rebellion against you. I know, Jesus, that you died on the cross as a payment for every stupid thing I've ever done. And while I would never ask you to do that, I'd be crazy to ignore it since you volunteered. So thank you. Take away my sin. I'm giving you my life. He said, turn from sin, turn to God, and be baptized. Because that's a private decision you can make in your seat right now. You can pray and ask God to take away your sin and commit to following Jesus. And nobody else will ever know. But your faith was never intended to be lived in isolation. So while the Jews at Mikvah 
the Jews would baptize themselves. They would dunk themselves in ritual mikvah pools outside of the Temple Mount to purify the outside of them. Jesus said, John the Baptist actually said, no, you need to be mikvahed for repentance because what's most dirty is not the outside, it's the inside. And then those who then began following Jesus were mikvahed, saying that when Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead, he died and was buried and he rose from the dead with new life to give me a new life too. And that was like that third mikvah. Those of us who are now devoted followers of Jesus, we don't need three mikvahs, we need one. We need to go into the water and demonstrate now that we're a follower of Jesus, that we have turned from our sin to begin following after Jesus. And just like Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose from the dead, I am now dying to my old self. And I'm burying the person I used to be so I can live a new life from here forward. Some of you guys might say, but I've already been baptized. As a child, as a baby, my mom and dad baptized me. And that was a demonstration of whose faith? Your parents or yours? How long are you going to live on borrowed faith? That was their demonstration of their faith. When are you going to demonstrate your own? See, what they did for you as a child was commit their intentions to raise you to own faith. Now it's time for you to stand up and say, it's mine. I am this person now. It doesn't undo your mom and dad's intention as a kid. It brings it back full circle. If you've turned from sin to begin following Jesus as an adult, as a teenager, as a kid, but since you made the conscious choice to turn from sin and begin following Jesus, have you been baptized underwater? Yes or no? The answer is no. Then before we talk about any priorities, we need to get this taken care of first. You ain't done step one. We shouldn't be talking about step two, three, and four yet. For those of you guys who have already come to that place, after they were baptized, here's what happens in verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and waters. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved, those who were being rescued. From their sin. And in here, I see a pattern of behavior that changed once they were saved and baptized. And that is this they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They met together in one place. That's what we're doing now. So, what I'm saying is that if you're a devoted follower of Jesus, you've turned from sin to begin following after Jesus. And since then, you've been baptized. You actually need to start doing what the Bible actually says you should do. Number two, you need to not skip the gathering of those who are followers of Jesus on a weekly basis. They met together. Hebrews chapter 10 said we're, start, we're supposed to meet even more often, even more often. The farther we go in time, the more often. They met together in one place. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They gave generously of their money. They worshiped daily with their time. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and this next semester, we're going to be doing communion, Lord's Supper, in our life groups. And we encourage you to be in a life group, not to fill your calendar, but we encourage you to be in a life group to figure out with mentors and peers, like the scripture says, what it actually looks like to live like Jesus. And the last thing they did, they praised and thanked God regardless of what happened next. That's what it looks like to be a devoted follower of Jesus. 
And there's nothing I can do to make that choice for you. That's the ball's in your court. You get to choose whether or not you stay stuck where you're at or if you keep becoming, keep taking baby steps toward becoming the person God always intended you to be. And what you do next is determined by that. Are you with me? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. What I want you to do is I want you to take out your communication card and I want you to turn it over to back. Turn it over to the back. And I want you to do an honest assessment of the choices that you make. And if an outside person who didn't know your religion, didn't know your family history, didn't know you were married, didn't know you had kids, didn't know you had parents, didn't know you were in high school, didn't know you were in middle school, if somebody just looked at like a data, a spreadsheet of the choices that you would make, what would they say is the most important thing to you? What would they say is the second? Where would God fall on that list? If they looked at the choices, at a spreadsheet of just the choices you made, at what, what rank would God get? I don't know that number. Figure it out. Put what number? Tell you what. Right now, do that. Turn your paper over. What would they say is the number one thing in your life? What's the number two thing in your life? And if you're not doing this, this is uncomfortable, right? What number would God come in? And are you okay with that number? And if not, just do something about it. Just, just do something. It, do something about it. For those of you guys who've turned from sin, begun following after Jesus, maybe it was here at Grace Church at some time after a teaching we bowed our head and prayed, you said, God, take away my sin. Help me to follow after Jesus for the rest of my life. Honestly, that's why this church is here, to help people find Jesus. And then for those who found him, to help them follow him. That's the whole purpose of this church. This church does not exist for any other purpose than that. If you've turned from sin, like I'm, I'm, that's awesome. But at some point, as a child of God, according to the scripture, it should be pretty quick, you need to publicly identify yourself as being on Team Jesus. You need to demonstrate publicly the private faith that you've already owned. Are you with me? And you need to be baptized. That's biblical. You've got to be baptized. And today, in Avon and in Braintree, we've got a baptism set up. So in a minute, we're going to have the band come up and they're going to start singing. And when they're singing... Those of you who've already turned from sin to begin following Jesus, but since then you have not been baptized underwater, I'm going to ask you when they start singing to leave this room and go to the back. In the Avon, Ricarder will meet you. In Braintree, Taylor will meet you. Some of you guys, you've already signed up for baptism. You knew today was coming and you're ready. You're already wearing shorts and t-shirt. Others of you guys, you didn't bring anything because you weren't prepared, but you know for a fact this really is your next step. You're tired of being stuck. You're ready to own this thing. Like you are ready to start following after Jesus. You just didn't bring any clothes. All you've got on is what you're wearing right now, and I've got great news for you. Are you ready for this? If this is all you brought in the back in both locations, I got a t-shirt for you to run into the bathroom and change in. All right? It's got one of these t-shirts that says, I've decided. That's, but that's just my top. What am I supposed to do? Go in naked from the waist down? <laughs> Dear God in heaven, please don't. <laughs> we got security who will take you out if you do. 
But we have a pair of shorts that will cover every size booty in here. I promise you. And listen, we got, we got a pair of shorts for you. We got a t-shirt for you. And I, I know from my wife that if you got your hair done did this weekend, the last thing in the world you're going to do is get it wet. We have a shower cap for you also. We have got, when I say we got your butt covered, we literally have your butt covered. The only thing we're waiting on is for you to decide whether or not your faith is going to mean something to you. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your love. I'm thankful that you love us exactly where we are, but you love us too much to leave us there. God, I'm thankful that you forgive me for doing the same stupid things over and over and over and over and over again. God, I'm thankful that my relationship with you is not based on my choices. It was based on Jesus' choice. And Jesus, I'm thankful that you made all the right ones. And I'm sorry for all the times when I don't do likewise. I'm thankful, God, that you're patient with me. But God, you do expect growth from me also. I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving in each one of our hearts. You're showing us where our priorities need to be realigned. You're showing us how the choices that we're making right now are taking us closer to you and the person you intended us to be or is moving us farther away from that person. God, I ask for forgiveness. God, I pray that we would all be doing that, that we would ask for strength and courage to begin making different choices. Let your will be done in each one of us today so that your will can be done through each one of us tomorrow. This is the prayer that we make, and we make it in Jesus' name, and we all say together.